If you study church history, you'll see that broader works of God, special works of God that we call revival, always start with the church. It always starts with the church, God doing a mighty work among his people, and then it spreads outward. We're in a series in the, in the book of Exodus, and if you could please turn in your Bible or on your Bible app to Exodus chapter 19, it's page 60 in your pew Bible, and as you're doing that, I'll share a few brief stories with you. Road tripping for pretty much all of my adult life and definitely all of my married life has just been part of the way that I have done life. Uh, my wife and I, Betsy, were from two different parts of the country, so that has always meant traveling to different parts, and I would gladly commute to China for this lady because um, she's special. But we've always, uh, and then when you add on top ministry to that, we've always done a lot of driving, and we are very experienced road trippers. And one thing you know if you're a road tripper, and you really know this if you're a parent, is that about an hour, well, maybe more like 20 minutes into the drive, what do the kids say? What do they say? Are we there yet? Yeah. Well, usually first it's, I got to go to the bathroom, right? That's the first one. Um, so didn't we just leave? But th- are we there yet? That's what you hear. Are we there yet? And remember, because I know It really hasn't been that long. It's only been 15 years since the iPhone was invented. Remember, before we had phones, remember back in the day where you didn't just, you couldn't just at a glance, look and see exactly how many minutes you were from your destination. You sort of, you know, you had to get out that thing that folded called a map and you said, I don't, what was the last exit number? You didn't know how close you were to your destination. God's people, in Exodus chapter 19, it has been 60 days since the miracle of miracles of the Old Testament, which is the Exodus. It has been 60 days since God delivered his people from the most powerful and oppressive nation in the world, the Egyptians, that he saved them, that he delivered them through incredible, miraculous means. And now you can imagine God's people are starting to say, Are we there yet? God, when are we going to get there? You promised us that you were going to take us out of slavery and you were going to take us to the promised land where the the food and the drink is like milk and honey and we're going to get, everybody's going to get a couple acres and it's going to be amazing and you're going to bless us. And God, in his great wisdom, And according to actually what he'd already told Moses, says, before we get to the promised land, you're going to meet me on the mountain. You're going to meet me before the mountain. And that's where we are in the story right here. God calls his people to meet him at the mountain in Exodus 19. And if you remember this, this is a detail that's very easy to forget from the burning bush. But when God first calls Moses, in the very beginning of Exodus, Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, we read this. And God said, I will be with you, and this will be a sign to you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. In other words, okay, follow the story. God has now brought the entire nation 
to the location that he pulled, that he called Moses from. Because remember, Moses had fled Egypt. And then God called Moses to come and deliver his people. God, all the way back in Exodus chapter 3, says, I'm going to bring you back here, except you're going to have the whole nation with you. And now they're there. They're at the mountain. They're in Sinai. And it's really fair to say that this is the first worship service of the people of God. Think about redemptive history. God calls Abraham. He calls uh, and, he, and he begins his people, really. And then there's Isaac, and then there's Jacob, and then there's Joseph, and then they go to Egypt, and then God delivers them out. Now they've seen God's power. They've seen God part the waters. They've seen the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, but they haven't had a worship service yet. Exodus chapter 19, the first worship service for the people of God. I wonder what the sermon's going to be from God. Let's read it. Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 to 6. On the first day of the third month after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. Here's a sermon. You yourselves have seen what I did in Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on the preaching of his word. O oh, oh God of our fathers, eternal father, strong to save. We are your people. And so often we jump to are we there yet with our lives when you've got a word for us to hear from you before we get to any action, before we get to any job, before we get to any strategy, before we get to any plans, before we get to any, this is what I want my future to look like. You have a word for your people. We pray, oh God, that you would speak to us now, that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher and that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Three things this morning. Our God, our identity, and our calling. It's all right here in the passage. Our God, who is this God? This is what God wants his people to know in his first sermon. Who is this God? Who are we? And what are we called to do? Our God, our identity, and our calling. First of all, our God. The very first thing God wants his people to know. Before he says, here's the, the coordinates on how you're going to get to the promised land. Here's the GPS plan. Here's the roads you're going to take. Here's the detour to save you five minutes over here. Before we get to any of that, before I tell you how you're going to defeat your enemies, before I tell you what you're going to do, you need to know who I am. 
And here is who I am. This is the thing I want you to know. I'm a God who saves. That's the number one thing that God wants to say to his people. I am the God who saves you. Look at verse 4. You yourselves have seen, past tense, what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. The very first thing is before we do anything else, who is God? God is the one who saves us from our sin. God is the one who delivers us from our bondage, from our enslavement to sin. I was teaching VBS the other day and I was trying to explain sin to the kids. And I said, you know, sin is really a global spiritual pandemic. It's a global spiritual pandemic. It affects every single person. And it's, it's funny that we live in this world of science where people say, well, if I can't test for it, I can't see it. But there's so many things that we believe and that we even see their effects, but we don't have a test for them. You can't see COVID with the naked eye. Sin is a global spiritual pandemic, and we know it by its effects. We know it because every single person has sin in their hearts. We are all enslaved to sin. We can all relate to the Israelites better than we care to admit. We are enslaved to our sin. We need a Savior. And the very first thing that God says to us is, here's who I am. I'm a God who saves you. I'm the God who has saved you. I'm the God who has delivered you. And then he uses this beautiful illustration. Where else do you find a religion where, where, God, where the God talks like this? Look at this incredible description. How I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, the bald eagle has been the national bird of the United States since 1782. There's a story that Thomas Jefferson wanted it to be tur uh, turkey. I don't know if that's true or not, but I'm glad we picked the eagle, okay? Because the eagle, if we know it, there, is there any bird that is more majestic, that is more beautiful than a, than a soaring bald eagle? I don't think there is. And if you've had a chance to see one, you probably have not forgotten. Well, in biblical times, they knew the power of the eagle. The eagle is really just like the lion is the king of the jungle. The, the eagle is the, the lion of the air. It, it's the top dog. And God says, just like an eagle, I have rescued you. An eagle's a bird of prey. I have defeated your enemies. And I've, I have also cared for you so tenderly like an eagle cares for its young. If you want to ever uh, see God's heart for his people in the Old Testament, and there's a lot of places you could go, but I'll give you a little gem that you may not think about all that often. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 9 to 11, we read these words. This is how God feels about his people. This is how much God loves his people. And listen to the imagery of the eagle. Deuteronomy 32. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage, he found him in a desert land, and in the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest and that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its feathers. God is this tender, 
bird of prey as the who cares for his people. He cares for us just like, a, just like an eagle has no way to care for itself when it's born. God says, I'm like that. I've come and I've rescued you. That's who I am. You can't save yourself. And each one of us is lost in our sin, in our rebellion. We all know it is true in our hearts. And the very first thing that God wants to say to us is, this is who I am. This is the first thing I want you to know about me. I'm the God who saves you. That's who, that's who our God is. Secondly, who are we? What is our identity? I'm not sure there's ever been a culture more than America right now that has tied identity more to performance and to what we do than our culture right now. Everything in our culture says your value comes from what you do. Your value comes from what you've accomplished. We know this. It's one of the first things that we ask someone when we meet them. We get to know them a little bit. Very quickly in the conversation, we figure out what do they do. We derive our value, our worth in America in 2022 from what we do, what we accomplish, what we achieve. And, you know, that works to a degree when you're winning in life, when you're, you're just killing it in your pursuit of sports or your career or money. But eventually those things will fail you as your identity. I was reading uh, an article recently about a musical artist. I'm not going to say her name, but she was in an interview. And you know what a good interviewer does? A good interviewer is always able to get their subject to open up. And so I'm reading about uh, this interviewer. He's reading this, this uh, musical artist who's young. She has conquered the world. She has enough money to run Columbia for 10 years. She's a global name. She's accomplished everything. And at one point in the interview, she said something that just really caught my eye. She said, look, I've got like, you know, 50 million followers on Instagram. Um, but sometimes I'll look in my feed and I'll see one nasty comment from one random person that I don't even know about my weight or about my music or about me, and it cuts me right to the heart and I find myself crying. And we say, how does this happen? Why does this person care? Why does it matter? If you build your identity on what you achieve, on your wealth, on what people think of you, on your performance, it will always fail you. It will always let you down. Eventually, you won't be able to perform at the level you once could. Eventually, the skills needed in your field will change. Eventually, your health will start to fail. Eventually, people won't need you like they've needed you in the past. Eventually, any identity built on something other than God will fail you. An identity built on performance or achievement is going to let us down. And so what God says is, here's who I am. I'm the God who has saved you. Here's who you are. You're my people. You're not what you do. You're not what you achieve. 
They haven't done anything yet. They haven't gone into the promised land. They haven't defeated anyone. Here's who you are. You're my treasured possession. It's really an amazing thing. Um, so, it, so the treasured possession, what the word means is, it means what belongs to the king and what is really special to him. So in other words, if someone came to you and said, you've got 30 minutes, you got one suitcase, okay, the kind that, that you have to fit in the little carry-on, right, that you always wonder if it's going to fit in that little thing at the airport. You got one little suitcase, fill this up. What would you put in it? What would you put in it? You know, assuming you didn't have to put all your money in it. What would you put in it? Would you put certain items of clothing? Would you put a photo album? Would you put some books that have meant a lot to you? What would be the treasured possessions that you would put in that suitcase? You know what God says to his people? He says, I own it all. It's all mine. You're my treasured possession. Deuteronomy 32. You're the apple of my eye. And your identity must be received. It cannot be achieved. It's received as we receive the work of the Lord Jesus on our behalf. As we say, Jesus, you did it all. Our identity must be received. It cannot be achieved. And oh, how subtle this is. That we say, yeah, Jesus is my all. And then we go right back to trying to achieve our worth before God. To try to give ourselves value. To play the games that the world wants to play. Philip Ryken, a pastor, now President Wheaton, says this. First, God rescues us from our sin. And then he teaches us how to live for his glory. God saves us in Christ before he calls us to live for Christ. God is about to give his people the Ten Commandments. It's the very next chapter, chapter 20. But before he gives his people the Ten Commandments, he wants them to know, you're not going to earn my love by keeping these commandments. You're not going to derive your identity from being the people who keep these commandments. That's not what I want you to do. Your identity is not achieved, it's received. Because you're the blood-bought people of God. You are those who have received Jesus, Christian. You are not what you do. Your value does not come from what you or I achieve or what we are. Our identity is this. We are God's children. Pastor Josh may be this this calling. It is a calling that I have on my life, but that's not who I really am. I'm I'm Josh Desh, a child of God. That's who I am. And even, and some some even call it the most subtle temptation of all, even people in ministry, pastors, missionaries, college presidents, can move that other identity above the simple fact of being a child of God. That's who I am. I'm God's treasured possession because Jesus has paid for my sin. He's brought me to myself. And now I obey not to achieve my identity, but out of love and gratitude for God. I've started to read a book. I don't know if I'm going to make it through, but it's one of the classics of the Western canon. It's called The City of God by St. Augustine. I bet everybody's heard of it. Um, I can hardly pick the thing up. It is a, it's a monster. But I've started to read it. And uh, it's, you know, I'll tell you this about reading old books. You enter into a totally different world. 
I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating in that degree alone. I mean, this is the year 400 in a non-Western, non-American culture. Augustine says something really interesting, though. He says, he, says, he says, look, everybody's a citizen of one of two cities. You're either a citizen of the city of God or you're a citizen of the city of man. And he says, those who are citizens of the city of God love God above all else. And this is very simple. This, still, this is absolutely true today. And those who are citizens of the city of man love themselves above all else. So you, you have your citizenship in one of the two. And uh, you either love God above all else, or you love yourself above all else. And Augustine says something really interesting. He says, in the city of God, there never has to be competition because God's love is not a scarce resource. He doesn't use those words, but he says there's never an end to God's love. God's love is an inexhaustible resource for his people. It's an inexhaustible a gift to his children. So there's never any competing. It never runs out. But think about the world. Everything else is a scarce resource. Money, beauty, fame, popularity. It's all a scarce resource. And so in the city of man, people are actually always jockeying, competing for these things. But Augustine says the beauty of the city of God is there's enough love to fill up every single heart. Our relationship with God, my friends, those of you here on the live stream, must be based on an identity that is given freely by our God of grace who loves his people so much that he calls us a treasured possession, the apple of his eye. And our relationship with God is not we obey so that we will be accepted, but rather we have been accepted by grace and now we obey out of love for him. That's what God wants his people to know. And so often we, we say, yeah, we say it with lip service, but the truth is we want God to just kind of tell us what to do. God, just tell me what to do. Give me the commands. Okay, don't do this. This is what I can do. Okay, this is what I can do. Okay, great. Now I'm going to live for you. God says, hold on. You're going to calling. You're rushing right to calling. Before you get to calling, you've got to know who I am. You've got to know who, and you've got to know who you are. And it's not until we know who God is, and it's not until we're secure in who we are, that we are ready to move to the third and final point, which is our calling. So often I'm convinced of it myself, that I want to go to calling before I go to identity. I want to go to God, just tell me what I'm supposed to do. God, give me strategies to grow the church. Give me this, give me that. Tell me, tell me the commands I'm supposed to follow. Give me the plans I'm supposed to do. And God says, before we get any of that, before we get to that, you need to know who I am and who you are. You're my treasured possession. You're a kingdom of priests. What a fascinating terminology. Priests are those who are in the presence of God. They're those who sacrifice before God. They intercede for God's people. What's so fascinating is that God says kingdom. In other words, even though he hasn't even established the priesthood yet, God says, eventually all my people are going to be priests. Go read 1 Peter. You're a priest. Every single believer is a priest before the Lord. In other words, we have immediate access to God through Jesus, and we're called to tell others about Jesus. The final thing, God says you'll be a holy nation. This is really fascinating. 
the Hebrew word is the word goy, which, which is always used in the Old Testament to mean the foreign, foreign peoples, not God's people. So God is saying right here, I'm going to build a holy people that is made up of everybody. And as I look around this room, I don't believe I'm seeing that many ethnic Jewish people. We're all Gentiles. We're all the nations that have been brought in that are in fulfillment of what God said to his people in Exodus chapter 19. Who is God? He's the God who saves. Who are we? We're the blood-bought people of God whose identity comes from our relationship from him and not from anything that we do. Finally, and very briefly, what is our calling? Well, our calling is to obey God. It is to fulfill our part of the covenant. But already in Exodus 19, you see it says, God says to obey the covenant fully. God already knows that his people are not going to obey the covenant fully. And we have our Lord Jesus Christ, that great fulfillment of the covenant, who has fulfilled the covenant for us completely, who has obeyed the Ten Commandments completely. So yes, we're called to obey God, but not, again, to earn his love, to earn his blessings, but we're called to obey him because we have been brought into a covenant relationship with him. And now we're called to go live that out in the world, to live it out in a world, friends, that you can probably knock on almost any of your neighbor's doors and deep down, what's motivating them, what's getting them up in the morning. For so many people around us, it's the desire to achieve, to make a name for themselves, and to find that thing that our hearts tell us we need, which can only be found in God. The need of our hearts, it can only be found in God. Let me end with this. I wonder if so often we want the promised land because the promised land is where all the blessings are. It's where there's no more problems anymore. 24-7 buffet. The food is good. The real estate is perfect. Everything is great. But God thinks to himself, you know, if I take you right there, you're going to love that and you're not really going to love me. So I'm going to take you to the mountain first. I'm going to teach you contentment with me at the mountain before I take you to the promised land. Because the great treasure, my friends, is God. He's the great treasure. The promised land is wonderful, and God is leading us there. One day we'll be with him and his people, and there will be no more sin. But God wants us to know that that greatest treasure of all is him. And when we come to the mountain as his people, and as we hear his sermon to us in the very first worship service, he says to us, here's who I am. I am a God so full of love that I would send my very son, the Lord Jesus, to die for you. Here's who you are. You're my covenant people. I'll never leave you or forsake you. I'll always be with you. You can count on it no matter what. And here's your calling. Go live as a light before the nations. You are blessed to be a blessing. It's so appropriate on this Sunday that as we think about how much we've been given in this nation, and oh, we have been given so much, and we think about the calling to steward 
And we think about Jesus' words in Luke 12, 48, where he says, to whom much is given, much will be required. It's so appropriate for us to also think about spiritually what we've been given. That we're the people of God. That we've been given the greatest news of all. It's changed our lives. And now we look out on a world that is divided, that is polarized, that is fracturing, that is morally confused, that is chasing after the wind, that is doing all of these things. And here we have the truth to say to them, let me tell you about the thing that can really satisfy your heart. Let me tell you a message that can change your life forever. It's the good news of the gospel. It's an identity that will never fail you, that will never leave you. And actually, it'll free you to do all of these good things in a way that you could never do them before because now you're not asking of them something they were never meant to give you. That's exactly how marriage works too, marriage and children. Ask your, if you ask your spouse or your kids to do something that only God can do for you, that'll crush you and your kids. But if you're able to, to love them and care for them out of a rootedness in God, we're free to be better parents, better spouses, more full of love. Because we know who God is. He's a God who saves. We know who we are. We're those who've been bought with his blood, who have an identity that is received, not achieved. And we're those who have been called to go out into this world and to say, let me show you where the real treasure is. It's on the mountain. It's where we worship God. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we are grateful people. We're humble people. We long for more of it, Lord. Because you've made us your treasured possession. You've made us a kingdom of priests. You've made us a holy nation. Help us to live our calling out of our identity and to not find our identity in our calling. But to have it be an overflow of the Lord Jesus living in our hearts by your grace. And just as we are so blessed in this nation with so much, may we steward it well. May we steward our spiritual blessings all for your glory. Amen.